Hey everybody, I'm Jay Worthy and this is the podcast for anyone trying to inject some adventure, purpose and balance into their lives. 28 Summers is all about living life adventurously, seizing the moment and optimizing your life. If you've been on this journey with me from the start, then I'm back with another awesome guest for you today with an incredible story. If this is your first time, then welcome. I am so happy you found the podcast. I'm really blessed to be able to speak to incredible human beings every week and bring their stories to all of you. I really hope you like what you hear. This week, I'm talking to Aaron Baker, and his story is nothing short of remarkable. In 1999, as a professional motocross athlete, he sustained a career-ending spinal cord injury. He fractured three of his cervical vertebrae, rendering him quadriplegic. He was given the prognosis of a one in a million chance of ever feeding himself again. From the onset of his injury, he focused on not just accepting the pessimistic outlook offered by the doctors around him, but instead focused on the power of his mind, and he willed himself to make progress, one painful millimetre at a time. He is, by his own definition, a recovering quadriplegic, constantly progressing, regressing and consciously evolving. He is an adventure athlete, an author, a speaker, an entrepreneur and an ambassador for spinal cord injury. And he is also one of the most exceptional human beings I've ever had the chance to speak to. It was a real privilege to be able to sit with him and learn from him. I really hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Aaron, welcome to the 28 Summers podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Cheers, mate. Happy to be here. Good man, good man. And of course, you're in sunny LA. It's early in the morning for you. I'm in very gray and dark uh, UK, but uh, hopefully hopefully you've got a nice day ahead planned. Uh, the weather's actually, uh, we're supposed to get some rain, which is great. We're going to get some snow in the mountains. I can see the mountains here. And so uh, the, the past few days have been sunny and bright, but I actually look forward to a little bit of a little bit of cloud cover and rain. Oh, you should spend some more time in the UK. You get used to it. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let, let's dive in. I saw your story uh, in Soulkind magazine. You were featured in there. You met, um, I know you met Jamie and Chris. They spent some time with you pre, pre-COVID. Um, and I just, as soon as I read your story, I just knew I had to get in touch and see whether you'd, you'd join me. And you were gracious enough, gracious enough to respond straight away and say, yes. I think your story is... Uh, is is obviously remarkable on so many levels. But before, I, before we kind of get to, uh, you know, what happened to you, I, I'd love to just talk a little bit about your childhood growing growing up in the US. And you, we were just talking a little bit before we started recording about, you know, being adventurous and seeing as much of the world as you can. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. Um, as I was just saying, my childhood was filled with travel and culture. My mom raised my sister and me, Ariel, on uh, the central California coast, Carmel, a small little eclectic town, artist community, uh, filled with um, a lot of adventure. We were backpacking on the coastline of Big Sur. We were surfing the waves on those white sandy beaches, skateboarding. Uh, In the wintertime, we'd go uh, snowboarding. And the biggest trip was when I was, uh, I think, eight years old. She wanted to relocate us to Indonesia. (laughs) <laughs> unbeknownst to Ariel and me uh, one day she she packed us up and grabbed us by the hand and we jumped on a 747 and flew across the world 
And so that was a really uh, impactful experience, um, just the three of us. My, my uncle tagged along for a little bit. That guy was more of a liability. But uh, it was, it was uh, really mind-expanding. Even though I was so young, it really you know, impressed um, on, my, on my young mind how big the world is and how much more there is. Because at that time, all I wanted to do was ride my little motorcycle, which Santa Claus brought me when I was three years old. So in my mind, that motorcycle was the world. And my mom wanted to open my mind up to so much more. And that's what she did with travel and culture and music and food. And so uh, I think that shaped me as a boy. I knew that there was more. Although I wore that helmet all the time and all I wanted to do was race, there was something else in my mind. I knew that, the, that life was much bigger than just that tiny little motorcycle. That's an amazing gift. And I, I guess at, the, at that early age, you started to then dream about traveling the world. Were you, were you fusing the two things at that time, like traveling the world, riding motorbikes, or you just wanted to go and see the world? Well, no, I think uh, the motorcycle actually allowed me to travel the country. I never raced outside the country, but I definitely saw uh, most all the states. Um, you know, that motorcycle, I, I raced every weekend. I was on that thing all the time. When a lot of my friends were out surfing and, and skating, I was practicing. And um, so anyways, that, that motorcycle took me a lot of places, and I'm grateful. And was it when you when you got that motorcycle at three years old? Was it love at first sight? Did you just you just knew that you were going to love it oh, straight away? I remember it vividly. Uh, Christmas morning, sitting there in front of the fireplace next to the Christmas tree, uh, I was in love. I again three years old. I jumped on that thing, and my dad fashioned training wheels, little little wheels to keep it upright, and and I jumped right on it and learned how to ride that thing before a bicycle. That's amazing. So it was really empowering having the control of the throttle and just being able to maneuver this little machine. It was, um, yeah, it was a real empowering feeling at such a young age. And I, uh, you, the, you have a remarkable documentary, which maybe we'll talk about in a little while, but you, you talk in that about when you open up that throttle, looking back, always loving to look back. I really loved that. It was that feeling of power and being in control and being able to just kind of open it up. Yeah, yeah, it is. You feel the vibration, you feel the acceleration, and you're just controlling your your destiny, really. You know, just racing down the road and seeing the, yeah, I don't know. It, it's just a feeling, and I'm feeling that again all these years later. I feel like that little boy. That's great, though. That's when you know it's a real passion, right? When it When it kind of makes your heart sing whenever you think about it. Well, we'll get into it, I'm sure, but I'll be riding down the road these days and just blurt out laughing <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing so when you you know as you started to get into the motorcycling and, and you, you started to compete at what stage did you start to dream that you wanted to be a pro rider the moment i saw the trophies <laughs> uh, you know the my first real race when i actually saw uh the gold uh that you win by crossing the finish line first you get trophies that are taller than you and at that time, that was that was all I wanted to do. And so I would watch the professionals, and I would, I just uh, thought they were superheroes to me. And I started winning the races and winning the big trophies, and it uh, uh, it really set my path. That's what my heart was was set on. Yeah, and and I guess also maybe a, a combination of that and your mom kind of exposing you to all this kind of cultural opportunities and traveling. 
the chances of you ever doing a traditional desk job are probably pretty pretty slim, oh. right? No, 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 no. Never never even occurred to me. Right. It was so much more I was just too active of a of a child. Outdoors all the time. I mean, pre video games, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, look, um, I guess we we have to we have to talk about uh, 1999 next, and and so you turn pro, you're traveling around the US, and you're, you're essentially living your dream. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you're kind of living that dream that we just talked about. Um, and then and then you had this accident. Um, if if you don't mind, would you tell us what happened? Yeah, no, those are my words exactly. I was truly living my dream. I was racing the motorcycle. I was traveling. I was. I felt very sure of myself and a sense of confidence that the world was within my grip and that grip was on was handlebars but um fate had it that uh i was to do other things and uh, i had a mechanical failure in the motorcycle one day i was riding and testing the engine and and it failed and i catapulted over the handlebars and impacted the ground head first and it was just, it's vivid. I remember every minute uh, like it was yesterday still to this day. Um, the sound of, of – it was really loud, like a gunshot or snapping a vegetable, just kind of this – I knew exactly what had happened. Um, it's like flipping the light switch on the wall, you know. The electricity to the house goes out <laughs> and uh, there's, no, there's no innovation. My body went completely limp. Uh, no pain, but I flailed, you know, uh, tumbling down the down the hillside and laid there, um, conscious, terrified, in shock, but fortunately remained alive. A lot of times, a high level spinal cord injury. If if you're left there, you perish, you know, um, because I could barely breathe. There's you know, there's no innovation to the lungs, to the diaphragm. Anyhow, I was very fortunate to have uh, bystanders there that uh, called the paramedics, rushed me to the hospital. I had a great team of doctors that fused my neck, stabilized me. Um, and I awoke a couple days later to the prognosis that I was a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down. How old were you at that time? I was 20 years old. For somebody as, I mean, you, years old. I think I, I think I read that you, as you were lying there in the dirt, you, you were very aware of what had happened. You couldn't, you, you immediately knew you couldn't move your arms. You could, I think you said you, you couldn't differentiate. You, there was no difference between the dirt and your arms. They just looked like objects. Is that? It was a very, yeah, it was a, a metaphysical, like understanding, like my hand was in front of my face, this hand mm-hmm. and it was right in front of my face. And it was a stone right next to me. And it was an understanding that if I was not moved, someone else didn't come in and intervene, that I would remain motionless like this stone indefinitely. And that there was no difference between me vibrationally in this stone, like fundamentally all the, the stuff that makes up matter in life. And it was just emerging an emergence of like this, this awareness that, uh, it's all connected. And the real profound solidifying experience for that understanding was um, respiratory failure six days later. 
I flatlined in the hospital because my lungs had filled with fluid and, um, and I experienced my own mortality. I experienced a disillusion of matter. I came to understand that we truly are all one, right? All religions and philosophies and things point to this uh, oneness, this interconnectedness, this vast expanse of potential energy. And that was, uh, that was my experience. It was blissful. And you remember that moment? Yeah. Wow. And so the, the medical staff resuscitated you and, uh, and then you had to start dealing with this, this in, uh, unbelievable news that I can't imagine hearing, particularly, well, for anybody, but somebody as active as you uh, at 20 years old. H- how did you first handle that? Was it? In the beginning, I mean, I was just, when I opened my eyes again after this experience, the, the reverence that arose in me, the gratitude for every breath, every moment of awareness, every connection to my grandmother and my mother, every minute of consciousness was just a gift. And I was so grateful to actually have a breath in my body that nothing else mattered. Nothing mattered. And I lived in that space. But I also dealt with the absolute trauma of uh, being completely paralyzed. So I had this like contrast, this tug of war internally that I worked really hard to reconcile, and I still do. Um, but I, I, um, I don't know, mate. It's, uh, it's hard to articulate that experience. I just know that I, I have experienced lived through vast contrast of pain and suffering and incredible elation and joy and pleasure and satisfaction and purpose and all these things, right? Like it's a spectrum of emotion and it's one hell of a ride. No no question. I I, I mean, you today, you know, listening to you talk and, and, seeing your posts online, you, you are this incredibly positive, philosophical, um, you have this very balanced view. I, I, I got to believe that at times during your recovery, it, there was kind of some abject despair in there. Is that is that fair to say? I worked very hard to create the balance of which you're speaking now. And many times I've been off balance one way or the other. And, and it's painful. It's dark. It's the, the dark is black. And there have been multiple times that I very seriously contemplated not being here. Uh, I, I came very close one time. And a couple other times, it's just when the mind is in that, in that space, it's so heavy. Gravity is so crushing that the light fails to penetrate. But that's where I've been so fortunate to have the love in my life, right? My mother and those that care have been there for me. And had they not, I wouldn't be here now. Because, um, you know, that's, that's just a very real human experience is 
suffering can can crush the the light out of your life and the desire to go forward. No doubt. Um, so I remember from the documentary that uh, there was a moment. It kind of you know it's it's a I, I really encourage everybody um, uh, to listen to the doc to watch the documentary and to to really take time to listen to your story because it is it is genuinely remarkable and there's a bit in there that it really made me smile <laughs> in a way your uh, I think it was your sister started painting your toenails is that right yeah correct yeah yeah so maybe tell that story because it kind of you know it's such a obviously it's such an emotional documentary but at that moment it really made me kind of laugh out loud because of what happened and what you said but it but it seemed like that was almost like the spark that started something yeah, well, you know, she came into my hospital room. I was I was not feeling well, um, a little dark. And she came in with the, the purest intentions. It was endearing. She brought her bag of nail polish and said she was going to give me a pedicure and start painting my toes. And I was not, I was not into that. <laughs> but her, her response was, if you can kick me, then I'll stop. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, that wasn't happening. But, so anyhow, she paints my toes all these rainbow colors. And it instinctively occurred to me that I start to engage with this color because as an athlete, um, it's quite common to use visualization techniques to imagine positive outcomes. For me with motorcycle racing, I could close my eyes on the starting line pre-race and envision every corner, every rut, every movement of my body. I could imagine uh, winning the race. And I somehow started to apply this same technique to my body and those colors, using the color blue for my left blue toe, up my leg, through my body, into my spinal cord, the color red, the color green, the color yellow. Like I would just, instead of it just being this ambiguous electricity in my body that I'm, I don't understand anatomy. I wasn't educated in this way. I couldn't tell you the different muscles and bones and such at that age, but I could see the colors. And that was, in a sense, me connecting my mind to the electrochemical signal and focusing in on it and willfully moving it through my body. And that was the technique that I used to trigger twitch. That was the spark. Amazing. And, and you felt it and others saw it your sister did your sister see it yeah oh yeah no it was voluntary i mean i was having involuntary contractions and spasms and such but it was my intention i said watch and i would trigger and, and i think for context for uh, for people who haven't watched the documentary or heard your story yet pr- prior to this you've been given you've been told you had a one one in a million chance of ever feeding yourself again let alone moving any of your limbs is that correct yeah yeah that was a grim prognosis i was a statistic based on the level of injury um, and trauma caused to the spinal cord injury a lot of times uh you know it can be a death sentence at least back then um the life expectancy for someone with a high level spinal cord injury was not very long uh the, the complications that accompany this type of condition a lot of people succumb to mm-hmm. there's a whole list of issues that i still deal with and manage on a daily basis I, 
the bones demineralize, the joints contract, the muscles atrophy, the bowel and bladder impacted, the neuropathic pain. I mean, there's a lot <laughs> that someone with a spinal cord injury lives with. And this is what, um, you know, the doctors were basically saying that, yeah, if, if I wish they would have said, if you don't adopt an active, healthy, well-rounded lifestyle, then all these things are going to be 100% true. And you're going to suffer tremendously. Yeah. But if you do, then there's possibility. And that's what I like to say now to newly injured individuals or doctors and the way they communicate a prognosis. Uh, somehow we just took it upon ourselves to say, F you, that's not going to be the future. We're going to just, you know, attack this thing and see what happens. But, but you're right. And we'll talk a little bit about your own, your own journey because, because that was definitely game on for you. That was that, that Twitch was like, okay, it's on, right? We can try and. Yeah. I mean, my mom's pretty much an outlaw. I mean, she's got this Indian spirit, American Indian blood. It just, you know, boils up and she's fierce. And I suppose I have some of that too, because the authority, the, the God effect that these doctors were saying, uh, was going to be my future. I, I basically said, F that, like, you don't know this. You don't know what we're going to yeah. do. That is not how my future is going to be. Yeah, it, it, it's presented to you as a fait accompli. It's like there's no other alternative. You're not going to be able to move again. You're not going to be able to feed yourself. But but how could they possibly know for sure? Well, what am I supposed to do with that kind of information? It's right, exactly. Yeah. It's like, well, thanks, yeah. man. Uh, my future sucks now. Like, that's it. I'm done. You're writing me off. You give me no hope. I understand a doc doctor <clears throat> protecting themselves legally and not giving any kind of false hope. I understand that 100%. But it's BS to wipe the hope away from somebody in the beginning. I say empower them with education, right? Give them the facts of the surgery, you know, the let them know the complications that they're going to have to face and deal with. Turn them on to all these other stories and these other people around the world that are you know, making great lives despite the adversity, you know, do that kind of stuff and be a matter of, matter of fact with the person and say, look, I guarantee that your body is going to deteriorate if you don't do something. All of our bodies do, but with this injury, it's just compounded. So I respect that kind of approach much more than the bullshit he fed me in the beginning. Yeah, for sure. Excuse my language. No, not at all. I think I think you're. Uh, it's fully reasoned. Um, so we you touched on your mom. Let, let's talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about about her and that that kind of fiery spirit. And uh, I, I understand that ultimately, eventually, the the care that you were being given came to an end. I guess for insurance purposes, and you got you had to find something else. And maybe talk me through that. Uh, you're finding new new uh, a new place to go and try and recover. Yeah, well, that was actually the um, <clears throat> the catalyst for my darkest days, Jay, was when insurance was done. That's as much rehab as I was going to get. It was one year post-injury, and they basically just sent me home to do nothing. And that's where I, I was extremely depressed. Um, and my mom, being who she is, uh, was was looking all around the world 
for the next step? Like what, where do we go? What can we do? What kind of, of um, therapy or exercise? Or, because she knew that I had the desire to work, you know, just give me the opportunity, the space to, to exercise this, this flame inside me, you know, because it was, I was either going to <clears throat> channel that energy, whether it's positive or negative into something constructive, or it was going to, I was going to self-sabotage and burn myself up. Right. So she knew that I needed an outlet and that's where she found the center of achievement at Cal state Northridge here in uh, Los Angeles um, and a program there, which was a, uh, basically a teaching learning lab for the students. Uh, but it was for special populations because the founder of that program, the professor there had a, his best friend was, had a traumatic brain injury. And so he turned his kinesiology lab into a physical therapy space for his best friend. And that's where it came from and where it started. And so when I was wheeled through the doors of that space and I saw the bright red carpet and I saw all these strange looking machines and all these young, vibrant students ready and willing to work with me and give me the, the space to just, you know, kick some ass. Man, that, I mean, that was a big light bulb moment for me. That was like, yeah, this is where we're going to get it done. Right. Because you were surrounded by people who, who believed that they could help versus people who were, I think, confused, right? Because they, they didn't. They had assumed that you couldn't make any progress, and when you started to make progress, I think they were confused by that. I'm trying to figure out why, rather than trying yeah. to help you make more progress. Well, yeah. I mean, back then, I mean, this is you know, 20 years ago too. Uh, physical therapy was a box. You know, the the curriculum for it was written in the 20s, and it really hadn't evolved much since. And so, once you reach a certain plateau, that's it. You know, the nervous system doesn't regenerate. You know, neuroplasticity is a new term, which means basically the rewiring of the nervous system. So it was, wasn't understood very well back then. And, and that's why, you know, insurance says, PT says that's as much as you're going to get. I mean, this is as good as you're going to get. So why should we continue paying for your rehab? On the other hand, kinesiologists are just studying the science of human movement, human bodies, injured or not. You know, there are fundamental ways in which we move and function. And I bring this desire to reconnect to my body. I have this mentality and I have these hungry students that want to teach me and show me how to move through time and space. It's a beautiful combination, a great alliance. And it was uh, education plus motivation equal the results we were getting. Amazing. And over, a, I think, a course of five years, was it five years there? You really made incredible progress. Yeah, I mean, we were so. Well, I lived in a bubble. I mean, basically, life as I knew it was history, ancient history. I just focused six days a week on on the university there, setting and achieving tiny little goals along the way, just raising the bar each time. Always looking forward, putting a target out there, giving me something tangible to work towards because recovery in general, was just so broad and so big. It was hard for me to feel satisfaction because the gains were so tiny. You know, in the beginning, a flicker of movement's a big deal when that's all you got. But then when you build on that flicker and you start getting movements and you start expecting more and you want that momentum to continue, and a lot of times it's not just 
you know, ne- you know, never increasing um, path. It's it's full of pitfalls. It's full of plateaus, and trying to break through those is a real challenge. But having the space to do it is what matters. And that space was so meaningful for you that you opened your own center in in 2011. Yeah, and and so tell us a little bit about that. Another aha moment, right? I mean, I'm I'm in this space looking around, going, "Why the hell was this so hard to find? Where is this? You know, you know, for the general public, I mean, it's hidden away inside of a university." So it was it was my mom and me just going, "Yeah, this uh, there's a need out there. There's a lot of people that could benefit from this type of space to bridge the gap between rehab and regular fitness." So 2011, we saved all our pennies and went all in on a tiny little box gym called a core and still going sold it i mean it's still going yes but uh my mother and i we we just needed to to keep moving forward in life and and go in a new direction and so we sold it to uh one of the trainers there uh the summer of 2019 which in hindsight is a blessing because Owning a gym during these recent times would have been quite challenging. Yeah, for sure. That's my that's my old industry. I spent twenty years working in the fitness industry, so I uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, look, I I appreciate you talking uh, for so long about about your injury. I know um, twenty years later, it's it's probably as as raw as it was uh, back then, and it's difficult to talk about. So let's talk about kind of life now and. Um, you know, what you're doing and how you're living your life and, and how you approach things. I saw a, a, a beautiful video on your Instagram of you heading down the slopes for the first time on, I think it was like a custom ski trike and I'm a snowboarder and I, I know the elation of going down a mountain and I can only imagine how hard it would have been to think you were never going to do that again. And then to be able to do it, it just comes across in the video. <laughs> Yeah, what a feeling. That was last year. That was this time last year. Actually, for my birthday, we we went to the mountain and I saw this really cool, unique contraption. It's called a Snowgo. And this this great engineer um, created this mountain ski bike. It's got front suspension, great handlebars, great linkage in the back. So, you know, you've got three powder skis, essentially. And the way it works, you just stand on it and you lean a little bit and it's just, it's so well balanced that it just carves the snow. And I hadn't been on the mountain proper in 20 years. I, I mean, I'd gone up there and tried to do the, the sit ski and these other configurations, the toboggan and these, it just wasn't working for me and it was never any fun. Um, but whoa, when I came down the mountain on the snow go, Oh, what a feeling. That's why I'm looking at the mountains now. We're supposed yeah. to you know. And uh, I think Thursday we're going up for the first time this year. Amazing. I can see it. You've got a big smile on your face. You can see how much it energizes you. And so oh. do, you, do you like to fill your time with doing adventurous things now? Is that, is that, does that still make your heart sing? Oh, I have to, man. Yeah, I have to. That's, uh, that's my passion is just living adventurously, exploring the world, seeing what my body is capable of. That's really what I want to do for my daughter is, is open that world up to her and, you know, 
I, I take calculated risks. Obviously, I have to do a lot of um, premeditation on the physical activity that I'm going to do just because I can't just jump out and do it. There is a real methodical process to the, the logistics and the function of performing and not injuring myself <laughs> because walking down the hallway is, is a risk. And I think that's how I look at it. I'm taking big risk with everything that I do. So if I'm riding a Harley Davidson for 200 miles, you know, it's just more of that. But let's do, let's talk about that. So you, you have a, like a custom built Harley, right? Three wheeler Harley. Yeah. Yeah. What was it like getting back on a bike? Dude, just like I was, uh, you know, a five-year-old boy. I really, it, it really tickles me in a way that nothing else does. It's, it's quite, uh, uh, like I told you earlier, I, I'll be riding down the street and just blurt out laughing. <laughs> I catch bugs in my teeth all the time because I'm just riding with a grin. To feel the throttle, to feel the power, to be able to control that thing, like, oh, what an experience. So that's a part of my daily life these days. That's amazing. I love it. I'm so glad that you were able to get back on a bike because when you, I, I appreciate that, um, you know, it was a, a really dark time for you after the injury, but it, but it was something that brought you so much joy when you were younger. So being able to have that again must be really special. I'll tell you, Jay, you know, I've spent a lot of years, um, although being able to do certain things like ride a bicycle and walk in the desert, it's all very painstaking. There's not a lot of joy there because it's just so hard to do. To pedal a bicycle, although I've pedaled thousands of miles, Every revolution was maximum effort. Maximum effort. For me to walk is the equivalent of you walking on your hands down the hallway all the time. Think about that coordination and the balance and the strength and the endurance and everything it takes to just do that. It's not a lot of joy. There's not a lot of pleasure in just that process. So I've transformed this process this self-induced suffering into things that i really find pleasure in yeah the motorcycle is pure pleasure you're just back in your element you're not having to think too much about it you can just enjoy the ride yeah it, the, the thinking is shifting because as i told you before everything that i do is focused willed intent it's it's conscious conscious uh, intention like it takes a lot of bandwidth for me to walk and have a conversation or walk and chew gum, the cliche. Everything is a thought. It's not a reaction like like for your body. Yeah. So when I'm on the bike, I have gotten to this place where it's just a feeling now. My body knows what to do and I don't have to think about it. And I can just really enjoy the ride, truly. And what about um what about other sports or other activities that maybe you did before and you you've tackled since um or even maybe ones that you've tried for the first is there anything you've tried for the first time since the accident that you hadn't tried before i guess maybe not but well i mean everything that i do is different so it's all new to me you know I, i'm riding bikes or bicycles but they're tricycles you know so nothing really the mentality transfers over but the actual like configurations and and uh nothing is the same 
So to me, everything that I do is new and I look at it that way and I engage it that way. It's an, a new adventure. Even though I've been to these mountains and these beaches and, you know, all around here many times before, it's always new. Yeah. You know, so I make an adventure out of the mundane. But that seems to be the part of your source of energy. That's how you draw energy from it. It keeps you kind of positive and excited for life. I won't BS you, man. I'm not this uberly positive guy. I'm not medicated. <laughs> you know, I live in a, in a really broad spectrum of, of life emotions. Um, I just try to do things that that bring my heart joy. I try to be of service for others. Um, you know, hence creating core that facility brought a lot of purpose and meaning in my life, turning our tragedy into something, uh, larger than ourselves, giving other people that opportunity that I've had. I feel very blessed to have had such incredible love and support in my life. And I know that, you know, that death experience, it taught me that the two most important things in life for me is my time and my love. And all I can do with those things is share it, give it away. So I try to do those things. And in my adventures, in my, the things that I do, I just try to share that with people and not tell them that this is the way, but look, there is a way. I mean, this is what I'm doing and, and come join me, man. Yeah. That's really powerful, man. I think that, that whole approach that you take where you're not, you're not telling people, but you're just showing them the way. I think, I think that's really powerful. You must spend a bit of your time now, I guess, telling this story a lot, but also talking about, um, you know, your recovery and helping other people. You're, you're right. I've told the story many times. I mean, it's just, I, I love engaging people wherever they are in their life, whether they've experienced trauma or not. I think there are many layers in which we can relate and mirror each other. I like to be a mirror for someone's spirit to try to spark in them their own strength. Um, and in turn, that helps me. Um, I, I am working now at this phase in my life, a new dad. I, I really want to give people tangible tools. So I'm working on writing this book and, you know, creating more powerful presentations to leave people with tangibles that they can, uh, apply to their life rather than me just telling a feel good story. I want to give specific tools that apply to their own lives. What are some of the things, Aaron, that you might say to a younger, a younger you? And I, I don't mean, I, I don't mean as it relates to the accident, but I just mean, you know, it's something I often reflect on. I'm, I think we're a fairly similar age and I often reflect on what might I, what might I have said to myself, what advice might I have given a younger version of me? Um, I'm curious to know if you ever reflect on that. I think more so recently because of the birth of my daughter. What am I going to tell her? What, what? Right. Congratulations, by the way. Cheers. Thanks, mate. It's extraordinary. You know, I, I'm working that out, but I think uh, I really want her to know that, or me, to know that the challenges in, in life are are the real opportunities right like that's where the growth occurs that's where you know it forces you to narrow down your decision making and to to strip away the nonsense focus on what's important and what can you control control your controllables 
your thoughts, your words, your actions, they all mean something. They all have an impact and a repercussion. So I think seeking that out and welcoming the, uh, the challenges, I call it self-induced suffering because life is suffering, right? That's a, it's a, in Buddhist philosophy, it's a noble truth. We're all going to suffer in some form or another. The attachment to that suffering is what prolongs it, is, is the reason if you're attached to it. And if you can come to a place of releasing the attachment, then you liberate yourself That's really powerful. from the actual suffering. I, I think also, you know, when you talk about, um, you talk about kind of finding your passion, like you have done a few times in, in the, the chat so far, I love I love that advice. You know, as I reflect back on a young me, I was in such a hurry to do everything, you know, and I don't think I was really aware of how powerful words are as well. You touched on that a little bit, but I think when you're young, you don't really realize that the resonance of what you say, or you don't appreciate with how how much it can impact other people. You know, well, I think the the essence of this of like language is losing its uh, going into a space like metaphysically like philosophically like sound is powerful the tone the word like when you're talking about its its use and its power how what its effect it really does it really can change something physically you can affect another being another entity with the tone and the words that you use sound is the essence of it all yeah i totally believe that I mean, we, we talked before we started recording i'm i'm a dad and as well and i um you know i talk to my kids particularly my oldest of both girls and and i say you know be be careful with your words or be maybe careful is the wrong word, but be wise with your words, right? Really think about the words that you use and how, how they will, uh, how they can mold other people. I just don't think when you're young, you just don't really, you don't really think about that. You don't really realize or appreciate the uh, longevity of your words. You know, you say something and in your mind it's gone, but it, but in the universe it stays, it's, it's there and it has a ripple and it goes on and on and on. Right. That's the ripple, man. I, I mean, a lot of us, young or not, I don't think we, we pay enough attention. We're not educated traditionally to look into these things and to understand these things, the fundamentals of yeah. who we are, where we came from, and where we're Love going. Love it. We went deep there. I like that. <laughs> That's a whole other chat, right? I like we get it. into cymatics and all that stuff. It is. Absolutely. Well, uh, we'll have to, uh, post COVID, we'll have to get together as well. So one of the things that I want to do with my guests, uh, when, uh, when COVID allows is get together and do some adventures together. So, uh, so that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> I still have a bucket list of riding a bicycle in Europe and yeah, exploring. I, I, I would love it. Ah. Just give me a call. Come to the UK, come to Europe. We I'll show you around. We could have a great time. So are there, um, are there any, uh, on that basis, you know, it's the perfect segue, really. Are there any adventures that you've been dreaming of that you, that you really want to do 
I mean, there's obviously traveling in general, which I fully appreciate, but is there anything specifically that you said, you know, I'd really like to, to go do that? There's a mountain out here called Mount Whitney. I've for a lot of years now dreamed about hiking it. Uh, it's totally doable. It's the tallest uh, peak in the lower 48 States. It's a 14 er uh, the, the actual route is doable. I've got it all mapped out. It's just a, a matter of pulling the right team together, getting my body in the right place for it. Because although I walked through the desert, that was pan flat and quite difficult, but I think this is doable. There's another mountain called White Mountain, which is just 200 feet lower that I want to cycle up. And then the Harley. Uh, I mean, I've pedaled across the country once, and there are some roads that I really want to revisit, and I want to ride the Harley across. So I think that's doable. I would I would bet on you doing all of those. And, um, I mean, the mountain, particularly Mount Whitney, that sounds amazing. Uh, uh, yeah, man. you you got to take a film crew with you on that one. Yeah, that's a big one. That's a big undertaking. But, you know, I'm also experimenting with these really great robotics um, where it's a, a lower body uh, robot suit built for the military, but they're really doing a lot of R&D for rehab purposes. And if we fine tune it enough, that thing will definitely help me step up uh, up those trails and over those rocks. Well, hey, if you need anybody for the team on Mount Whitney, just, just hit me <laughs> up. I'll come join you. So listen, um, I want to I wanna let you go because I'm sure you've got fun stuff planned for the day. But, but before we finish up, um, so the 28 Summers podcast is – is all about this notion of living adventurously. And, and for me, I always repeat this um, because I think it's important that it, when I talk about living adventurously, I don't necessarily mean climbing mountains or exploring jungles. It could be those things, but it doesn't have to be. For me, living adventurously is a mindset and it's about being open to possibility and about you know saying yes more and pushing your boundaries to a certain extent, but trying new things. So with that in mind, for people listening who I know will have been really inspired by your story, what um, you know, what would be your advice to people who want to live more adventurously but just really don't know where to start? Wake up and repeat the mantra, I am grateful. I am grateful that I have this breath and that life is just absolutely miraculous. We are here and now flying through space on this rock, this beautiful rock. When everybody's looking at Mars, who gives a shit? This rock is amazing. This is an adventure. We are here. We are now. You can turn adventures, uh, turn the mundane into adventures. You know, every little thing, if you just change the way you look at it, can become miraculous. We're so lucky to be here and now. In the big picture, we're just a fleeting speck of time. So make the most of it, man. That is just (laughs) so beautiful. And I absolutely love that. I I, re- I was listening to a podcast the other day. You, you'd, you'd like it. it was with um, Major Tim Peake, who is the British astronaut that went to the International Space Station a couple of years back, and and he was just reflecting on you know looking out back at, at Earth, and and you, you almost wish that everybody could have that view, right? Just so that you can see the Earth and realize and really focus on it's one Earth. Everybody's the same. We're not different. We're all together. We're all people together on this beautiful planet that is entirely isolated in the universe in the grand scheme of things right so we just have to enjoy our moment our moment yeah 
Yeah. Well, you're certainly doing that, man. And your your positive. I know. I appreciate that that nobody can be 100% positive all of the time. But um, but I, I love your energy, and I think your story is is absolutely unbelievable. Um, and uh, thank you for sharing it. Really appreciate it. Uh, I love following you on social media, and uh, I'm just going to really enjoy watching the rest of your story. Cheers, mate. Let's. Uh create more stories together sounds good thanks Aaron my pleasure well I told you Aaron's story was remarkable and it's clear from the way he speaks about his family particularly his mother that they played a huge role in his recovery But it's also clear to me that Aaron is a very, very special human being. To be faced with such a devastating injury and the relentless life sentences that were passed on by specialist doctors and still find the will and the energy to defy the odds and reclaim his life is quite simply incredible. Aaron is the personification of the 28 Summers philosophy, a very real lesson to us all to live every single second of our lives and never stop putting one foot in front of the other. You can follow Aaron on Instagram at I'm Aaron Baker and on his website, I'maaronbaker.com. Thank you as always for listening. Your support, your reviews, your feedback and the love that you've showed me is greatly appreciated. It really means the world to me. That is it from me today. I will be back next week with another amazing story to get your adventurous juices flowing. In the meantime, stay happy, stay healthy, and remember to live adventurously.